Come on in, find your seat. There are notes on the back, if you would like those. Give you a rough outline of where we are going this morning. This is what we're simply calling Behold Your King, some studies in Messianic prophecy. So excited to get into that just for a few weeks here in light of the Christmas season. I will let you know what we're doing, why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, First, let me begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have allowed us to come together this morning, Lord, that you and your providence have placed us in a country, in a state, in a county, in a city where we can freely worship you um, as we believe you have laid out in Scripture. Lord, we ask that you would continue to um, allow us to do that. for the good of your people and for the good of the country we live in, Lord, that we would be a faithful gospel witness uh, to those we come into contact with. Lord, as we look um, in this week and in the next four weeks into some Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of your Son, Lord, I pray that we would uh, delight in them, Lord, that as we study your word and mine the depths of its riches, that we would be more conformed to the image of your Son, that we would be changed into your likeness as we see the glories on the pages of Scripture. Lord, be with us now in this time. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Messianic prophecy. Why look at Messianic prophecy? Well, for one, Christmas is coming up. Christmas is coming up. Now, people sometimes don't know this. They think I'm kind of, you know, reserved and, you know, serious all the time. That is not true. Uh, for those of you who know me, there are times to be serious, but there's times to, uh, you know, I enjoy Christmas. I enjoy Nat King Cole records, you know, around Christmas time, Frank Sinatra. I like hot chocolate, uh, you know, around the fireplace, reading a good book. I love that stuff. Um, I love watching It's a Wonderful Life around Christmas. Who else watches that? Sadly, my wife, hate, like, despises that movie, uh, and it just pains my soul, uh, she just, she can't get over the sad parts of it. And I'm like, it has such a good ending. It's a wonderful life. She's, nope, she can't do it. But there's so many things I love about Christmas. But most importantly, though, I would argue that Christmas is actually a really good time for us to slow down. Typically around the holidays, like Thanksgiving, Christmas, everything is busy. We're traveling around. People are coming. I've got my family coming in this afternoon from all over the North 40, and they're just all over the place. Um, and I think we get so caught up in that. And actually, when we come to times like Easter, like Thanksgiving, like Christmas, it's right for us to pause, actually slow down, consider the coming of Christ in particular around Christmas. So rather than being crazy hectic, I want to challenge us just over these next four weeks, this week and the next four ones, to slow down, consider the coming of Christ as foretold in the Old Testament. I think we're very familiar with, you know, Matthew 1 and 2. You know, that's what we read around Christmas, Luke 2, the birth of Christ. Those are the ones we know, and we should. We should read those. We should continue to spend time in those around Christmas. But what I want to do is actually show that the promise of the Messiah, the coming of the King, the anointed one, the Son of God, the promise of him to come into the world is not foreign to the Old Testament. It's not something that the New Testament authors had to manufacture or come up with. Actually, the Old Testament is clearly pointing forward to this. In fact, the Old Testament ends on an unfinished note. If all we had was the Old Testament, it's kind of like, that's not the end of the story, right? 
And so I want to look at some of those Old Testament texts. Um, Why do we need to know this? Why should we study Messianic prophecy? Well, one, because the Bible teaches it. That's true. We should know our Bibles, and we need to know exactly what's going on. But also, two, I wanted to think about it this way. It's also a powerful apologetic. Maybe around Christmas or Thanksgiving, you're coming into contact with unbelievers or or family members. They're skeptics. They've got questions about Christianity. Man, I don't know what the Old Testament is all about. Well, spending time in these prophecies um, really is a valuable apologetic tool towards those who are skeptical. We're thinking about prophecies that are very clear and precise hundreds, if not thousands of years before the birth of Christ. Okay, Whoa. That's significant, right? precision with some of these prophecies. So maybe, you know, you're talking to your neighbors who are unbelievers, family members. Maybe you can point to some of these texts that the, the scriptures, the Old and New Testament, is not just a random collection of books or sayings or anything like that. Also in this equipment, so that's one reason why we're doing that. I also wanted to look not just at Messianic prophecies dealing with his first coming, the first advent, the birth of Christ, but also dealing with the second coming. Uh, oftentimes in the Old Testament, when the prophets are prophesying about the Messiah who's going to come, there's oftentimes an overlap where they didn't clearly see. It was just referring to his first coming and his second coming. First um, Peter 1.11 is actually very clear on that, um, that they didn't understand the time or the seasons in which Christ would come. They knew that Christ was coming, but it's not until after his first advent, after his birth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven, that we can look back and realize there's actually a lot of unfulfilled prophecy. Yes? Hopefully you're reading the Old Testament and you're like, I haven't seen this fulfilled yet. We're still awaiting the kingdom of Christ to come in its fullness on the earth. So we'll look at some of those. So in sum, here's what we're doing. First two weeks, I want to look at some of those classic Christmas passages, you know. So this morning, although maybe this morning you're like, this is not a classic Christmas passage, but you'll find out why it is. Uh, In Numbers 22 and 23 and 24. And then look at the virgin birth in Isaiah 7 and 9. And then a couple of more complicated ones, I'll just say, uh, in Ezekiel and Zechariah. If you're anything like me, I don't know, sometimes you'll start read through Ezekiel or Zechariah, and you're like, you know what, I don't actually really know what's going on here. Uh, this is kind of confusing. I don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, welcome to the club. And so I want to look at a couple passages that are a little more difficult that deal with Christ and his coming. I'll be gone for a week, I think in three or four weeks. And so Roman is also going to look at some prophetic texts uh, in wisdom literature. Um, you know, there's not a ton there, but there are some important passages. Well, there's a lot in the Psalms, uh, but in Job and in Proverbs, we actually get some insight into the Messiah. All right, so that's kind of the roadmap of where we're going. Make sense? So with that in mind, I want to look into the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to look at possibly a well-known, or maybe it's like, yeah, I remember that. That's kind of interesting. Uh, Balak and Balaam's donkey. In Numbers 22 through 24. If you are unfamiliar with this passage, you will hopefully uh, be familiar with it this morning. It is a fascinating text. Before we do that, I want to look at three texts in Genesis. This is going to be quick. You guys have these on your notes if you want to follow along. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3, and then uh, Genesis 49, 9 to 11. So we're going to run through those quickly. Now, hopefully... These are familiar to you. If you guys have had a class with me on the Old Testament or uh, Mark uh, preaching through Exodus, um, he touched on some of these. These are some of the very important 
Old Testament text, what I say is you can kind of hang your coat on them. It's like, I'm not really sure, like, what, what's the storyline of the Old Testament? Where is this going? Well, here's three texts that are really important for you to know where the text is going, okay? So hopefully you're familiar with them. If not, uh, you need to be. I'm not going to be in-depth uh, because I just can't for the sake of time. Just want you to simply notice one thing, okay? We're not reaching, just one thing from each passage, okay? We can do this. We can do this. Actually, the last one, there's two things. I lied, but pretty much one thing, okay? So with that in mind, Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15. Hopefully you're there. If not, just listen. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Hopefully we're very familiar with this text, okay? This is after the fall. Adam has failed to keep the garden and has let this demonic serpent into the garden. He has not kept the garden. He has fallen into sin. The woman was deceived and mankind is subjected to sin, okay? That is the context here. And God, uh, in Genesis 3, particularly in verse 15, we get the promise of typically what we call like the first gospel, okay? We get a glimpse into hope, okay? We are not left to uh, just toast, I'll just say, right, with sin entering the world. There is actually hope. This text, Genesis 3.15, I would argue drives and propels the rest of the Old Testament. We are looking for, we are anticipating the seed. The seed of the woman who is going to crush the head of the serpent. That is what we are waiting for. This descendant, this offspring from the woman who's going to destroy the works of the serpent and the devil. He's the one where through him, God's creational agenda of filling the whole earth with his glory is going to come about. Okay, We are waiting for the seed. One takeaway. Do you guys see, I want you guys to notice this in the text, you see in the second half of verse 15, it says, he shall bruise your head. Is track with me on that? Yes? Okay, the seed is going to bruise, or you could translate crush the head of the serpent, okay? So, on your notes there, this is the one takeaway, just you can simply write like crush head, okay? Just, that's all you could put, or however you want to, however you want to phrase it. That's what I want you to pick up from Genesis 3.15, okay? Crush head. Wonderful image. Get those two words in your head. Okay, Genesis 12. Turn there, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's much in this text as well. Essentially the seed of the woman, that promise of Genesis 3.15 has been narrowed down and now we know that the seed is going to come from the line of Abraham, okay? That's, we're tracing the story here. The seed is going to come from the line of Abraham. He promises to give Abraham uh, land, seed, and blessing. He's going to be a, a land of promise. He's going to have many, many descendants. Okay, simply one takeaway. Notice there in verse 3, do you see language of, I will bless those who bless you, I will dishonor those who curse you, or you could translate curse those who curse you, okay? If you bless God's people, you will be what? Blessed, okay? We're tracking. If you curse God's people, you will be cursed, okay? So however you take notes, however you want to do it, you can simply put, if you bless, you will be blessed, 
Okay? If you curse God and his people, you will be cursed. Track with me? Okay? So you've got point one there, crush head, bless to be a blessing, curse to be cursed. Track with me? Okay, that's all you need. Okay, Genesis 49. Genesis 49. Last one before we jump into numbers. Genesis 49. I'm going to start there, I believe, in verse 9. Some context before we read it. These are uh, Jacob's final words uh, before he passes away. He calls his 12 sons to come near, um, and he adds some words of prophecy. Here's what's going to happen, okay? So he's talking to his 12 sons. What's significant here is Judah. Judah is not the firstborn son, okay? He is not his firstborn, which would typically have, you know, most of the prominence, the rights, the blessing, all that stuff, okay? Judah is not the firstborn son, but he's actually the one who gets the most space, in Genesis 49, if you're just looking there in your Bibles, you'll see, oh, Judah is actually the prominent one here. Look at verse 9. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, <clears throat> binding his fold to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. The ending there, he's talking about this glorious future for this descendant from Judah. I can't talk about that right now, but if you've had me for Old Testament, you know I have talked about that. So I can send you the audio if you want. Two observations from this text. Okay, two things. Two things I want you to take away. Do you see how in verse 9... There's this lion language. You guys see that? He's like, like a lion, as a lion, lioness. You see the lion language, okay? That's one thing. Write down Judah, lion, okay? Some connection there. Judah, lion, okay? And also, see how in verse 10 it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. See those two, okay? This ruler in Israel, one from the tribe of Judah, is not going to come from the oldest or the youngest. He's going to come from the line of Judah, okay? So you can jot that down. Scepter Israel, okay? Or Scepter Judah, okay? Something like that. The one with authority is going to come from Judah, okay? Do you guys have all those three points? Crush head, blessed to be a blessing, curse to be a curse. Yes. Yes. Well, I don't have time to get into all that this morning. I would just simply say they're all from God. Um, there's no division between um, what we talk about as the, the human author and the divine author. Sometimes people want to do that and say the, the human author simply intended this one thing, but the divine author intended something else, and that's a major issue in hermeneutics. There's no division between the two. Um, it's what we call doctrine of confluence um, between the two. Um, no, I, I, I just think simply in Genesis 3.15 for one, there's more going on there. God actually says a lot more than just Genesis 3.15. There's more verses there. Um, and then same, same thing with Genesis 12. Um, if you keep reading in context, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. Genesis 12 is not the only part where you... Genesis 12 is where you begin to see what we call the Abrahamic covenant. But the fullness, actually, it expands out in Genesis 15, 17. So I wouldn't make a big issue. It's like God only says a little bit. God only says a little bit. Why Jacob? I would say God says a lot. God says a lot. God says a lot. Does that make sense? For simplicity, we can talk about that afterwards if, if that's an issue. Okay, should have that down. Crush, head, blessed to be a blessing, curse, to be cursed, Judah, lion, scepter, Israel. Track with me? 
Okay, Numbers 22. Turn to Numbers 22. Some context on numbers. You could put it this way. It's been pretty bad and it's been pretty sad. Okay, that's basically what's been going on in numbers. It's been bad, it's been sad. It's now very clear that the first generation, the Exodus generation, uh, we'll get into this especially more as Mark goes through Exodus. Uh, the Exodus generation is pretty wicked, okay? They don't really have hardly any high points, okay? They are a wicked, sinful people. As such, in Numbers, the context, they're not going to enter the promised land because of their sin. Even the leaders, Moses and Aaron, they will not. It's going to be the second generation, their descendants, who are going to enter the promised land. They are going to be the ones who possess it. Even in light of their sinfulness, right before Numbers 22, uh, the Lord has given Israel victory in conflict with some pagan nations, okay? That's the immediate context. So it's been really, really bad. God's given them victory, okay? Track with me. They defeat um, uh, the Canaanites, uh, I have here in my notes, King Sihon of the Amorites and King Og of Bashan. I love that name, Og. Just a great, just thinking of a boy name, OG, great. That's a joke. Okay, now enter, that's the context, track with me, Balak, chapter 22. Now I'm going to start in verse 2, okay? Well, verse 1, I'll read it, fine. The people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. Numbers 22, verse 2. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab, so it's a different nation here, Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the, oc- uh, the ox licks up the grass of the field. He's just, they're just going to destroy us, okay? So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they're dwelling opposite me. Come now. Notice the language here. Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for, notice the language here again, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 12, right? That is the illusion going on here. Here's what's going on. So you see those clear allusions to blessing and curses, okay? You notice on your notes, I call Balaam, I put in there in your notes, God whisperer, okay? Um, In, you know, quotes and lowercase g, okay? So the king of Moab sees what's going on in Israel, and he's like, I don't like this. I need to get some God whisperer, prophet guy, to curse this people for me because I've noticed that if Yahweh is with this people, they're unbeatable, okay? And we know this from Exodus. Is that true? Yes, right? It's not that Israel is so great and strong. They're not a nation of warriors, anything but, but God is just giving them victory after victory. Even when they sin, God still has grace and gives them victory, okay? So he's like, I need a shaman, pagan prophet guy, and I'm gonna get this guy to come uh, curse these people so that way they are cursed, okay? Just a side note here, the rest of the Old Testament, and especially the New Testament, is very clear. Balaam is not a good guy. Sometimes people are like, Balaam, I, I don't know. Like, he seems like kind of a nice guy. I don't know. He says some good things. No, Balaam is not a good guy. He is a false pagan prophet, okay? Uh, but the Lord is still going to use him. He says in Numbers 22, verse 12, God actually spoke to Balaam. He said to him, 
you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. See what the Lord is saying there? Even Yahweh is referring back to Genesis 12, okay? I have blessed Israel. You, therefore, will not curse them. Okay, track with me? Okay, so that goes on. The account here in Numbers is meant to let all the world know, especially the Gentiles. Up until this point, it's mainly been this revelation to Israel. God is letting the Gentiles in on his plan. Not only for the immediate future, but for the prophetic, what I would say is the eschatological end times future, especially when we get to Numbers 24. He's speaking to the Gentiles here. Hence, we get this kind of excursus onto Balak and Balaam, okay? More so to the Gentiles and by extension to us, okay? And he uses this curious figure of Balaam. If you're not familiar with this, his donkey. How many of you guys know Balaam and his donkey? You guys remember this? Talking donkey? Okay, good. Okay. I'm not going to read the whole account, but Balaam uh, goes with Balak's people, and God sends an angel to stand in the way, okay? So Balaam, you know, is riding his donkey. He's going to go, you know, to the Moabites, And God sends an angel to stand in his way. The donkey sees it, but the Lord keeps uh, Balaam's eyes closed. So Balaam, he's riding his donkey. He doesn't see the angel. The donkey does. The donkey stops his tracks. He's like, whoa, you know, angel of the Lord, this guy's going to kill me. You know, it's a smart donkey, okay? I'm not going any further, okay? Three times, this is important, remember this. Three times, Balaam tries to get his donkey to do the right, well, to keep going because he doesn't see the angel of the Lord. Three times. He goes this way, you know, donkey stops, Balaam gets hurt. You know, eventually he's mad at his donkey, he's kicking his donkey, okay? He's like, what is wrong with you, okay? Three times that happens. Pick, pick up with me, uh, let's go verse 28 of chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Talking donkey here, okay? And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? This... By the way, you can find parts of the Bible humorous. That's okay. I find this humorous. Verse 29, Balaam said to the donkey, like he's like, he doesn't go, whoa, talking donkey. He's just like, I'm just going to keep talking to my donkey here, right? Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, no. Donkey's like, I've been a nice donkey to you. Like, this isn't the normal way I act, okay? Verse 31. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face, okay? So the Lord opens the eyes of Balaam, and Balaam goes, okay, this all makes sense now. I see what's going on. So maybe you're thinking, okay, this is kind of a curious account. You can say that. Like, this is not the ordinary thing that happens. What's the point? You never want to come to a text like this and just go, wow, that's very interesting. Okay, let's keep going. Like, like, what's the significance of it? What's the point? What is going on here, okay? Well, as you read through 24, you start to see that the Balaam-donkey relationship is very similar to the Balak and Balaam relationship, okay? Lots of Balak, Balaam, who are we talking about here, okay? So Balaam and his donkey, there's a lot of similarities between that relationship and that account, and between Balak, the king of Moab, and the prophet Balaam. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, as you keep reading, Balak, he calls on Balaam to curse Israel. Guess how many times? Three times. Okay, 
three times, just like Balaam called on his donkey to get moving, you know, around this angel Lord that he can't see three times. Okay, that is significant. Balak, I would argue, the king of Moab, is spiritually blind, and he cannot see what he's doing in trying to curse Israel, just like how Balaam was literally blinded to see the, um, the angel in the path. And then finally, most importantly, Balaam, this false prophet, voodoo witch doctor teacher, you could just say, or something like that, okay? This guy, who's not a good guy, is supernaturally used by the Lord to speak his word, just like who else? The donkey. You see what I'm saying? You see those parallels there? If you read the account, it becomes very clear. Put simply, what's the point here? I would say is that Balaam is God's donkey, if you want to put it that way, okay? God is going to use a false teacher like Balaam, just like he used this donkey, to speak truth, okay? In particular, uh, not just to the Israelites, but especially to the Gentiles. God is revealing to the Moabites and to extension all the nations what God is going to do. You guys track with me? Okay, we got to get going here. Four oracles. You guys see those points? Four oracles. I primarily want to focus on uh, three and four, but we do need to hit um, the first two as well, okay? So that's kind of the structure of what's going on here. 22, 23, 24, the donkey episode, and then Balaam, four oracles uh, that he uh, preaches or teaches or whatever you want to say. Pick up with me in uh, chapter 23. Let's start in verse 7. Numbers 23, verse 7. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. Notice what he says. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? What's he alluding to? What passage of the three? Genesis 12. Track with me, right? He's saying, I cannot curse them. God has not cursed them. That's what he is alluding back to. God has chosen to bless them, therefore I cannot curse them, okay? Keep reading. Verse 9. For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Verse 10, who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Um, that's an allusion to uh, Genesis 13, 16. I didn't have time to go to this one, but Genesis 13, 16, the Lord promises to Abram that his descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore, okay? Well, we see that picked up here. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part? You know, there's so many that I can't even count a quarter of them. That's how numerous Israel is, okay? God says he will uh, make Abraham's descendants like the dust of the earth, and uh, Balaam uh, sees that being fulfilled. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. Verse 11, and Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered and said, must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? I skipped over this in 22. But uh, Balaam is very clear. The Lord to Balaam is saying, you are only going to say what I tell you to say. You are only going to speak the very word of the living God and that alone. And so Balak is like, hey, I want you to come curse Israel. And uh, yeah, Balak says it to Balaam. And Balaam blesses them. And the king's like, what in the world, man? I didn't pay you for this. And he's like, this is what I have to say. The Lord has said, this is what I will say. And that is what he's going to say. 
the main point of this oracle. You guys notice you have a little note there, like oracle number one, or whatever you want to write to it. Here's the main point. God will bless Israel. If you want to write anything down, write that. God will bless Israel. And you clearly see in there, hopefully, the links back to the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? That's oracle number one. Oracle number two. Pick up with me in verse 18 of chapter 23. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? I think that verse basically is the main point of the oracle. That verse right there. What God has said, he will do. God has said, I will bless Israel. God is going to bless Israel. He will not go back on his word. That is the main point of oracle number two. He cannot be thwarted by Balak and his paid-for prophet Balaam. Verse 20, behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. I mean, I sound like I'm you know, just like beating a dead horse, but you see the connections, blessing and cursing? You start to see why we prioritize these texts, because as you read the Old Testament, you see, oh, okay, this is important because it comes up everywhere, okay? God is blessed. Um, I received a command to bless, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. Verse 22, God brings them out of Egypt, the nation of Israel, and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. I'm going to stop there. Um, actually, pick up with verse 25. I'm not going to read the rest of the oracle, but verse 25, I find this funny. Balak said to Balaam, do not curse them at all. Don't bless them at all. He's like, you know what? Stop talking. You are the worst paid for prophet ever. Like, just say nothing, okay? Verse 26, Balaam answered Balak, did I not tell you all that the Lord says that I must do? He's saying, I have to say exactly what the Lord, uh, the Lord Yahweh has said I must say. Okay, so main point number one, God will bless Israel. That's that first oracle. Second one, God cannot lie. God cannot lie. He cannot be stopped in his agenda of blessing Israel. That is going to happen. Tracking along? Okay, oracle number three. This is where it starts to get messianic, pointing to the Messiah. Pick up with me in 24 verse 2. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe. And the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees besides, uh, beside the waters. He's starting to portray, I want to pause here, He's starting to portray this glorious future that Israel has in a land, okay? You notice that? It's like just this wonderful place. There's prosperity, there's water, there's food, it's beautiful, it's just wonderful, okay? I don't have time to talk about this, but this is a key point in particularly the prophets when you come to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the minor prophets as well, is that Israel is going to be brought back to the land and there's going to be a glorious future for them in that land, okay? It's not like they're going to just possess a place of dirt, okay? Which right now, a lot of Israel is a lot of dirt, right? 
okay? For those of you who've been there, you've seen pictures, there's a lot of dirt there, okay? It's like the desert, okay? This seems to be something else. Like, it's like, this looks wonderful. This looks glorious. This looks amazing. Balaam is starting to talk about that. The rest of the prophets pick up on that. Uh, verse 7, water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. Notice this language here. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. So he moves here from talking about corporate Israel as a nation to a, not corporately, but what? A single person, an individual. You guys see that? He says, his king, Israel's king, this single person shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom, this single person's kingdom, shall be exalted. God brings him, this single king, out of Egypt and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations. Again, notice this language and think about the text we read earlier. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. Verse 9, listen. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness who will rouse him up. Go back to those three Genesis passages. Which one does that allude to? Genesis 49. It's actually almost word for word a verbatim quote. Like word for word, not just in English, like in Hebrew, okay? So maybe you're going like, oh, okay. There's some connections here, okay? This king-like figure is described like a lion, just like the king-like figure in Genesis 39, or excuse me, Genesis 49 was described as a lion. You guys track with me, right? This king is going to devour and eat up and destroy nations like a lion. He's going to break their bones in pieces. This is not a meek and mild king. This is one who is roaring like a lion. End of verse 9. Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. Genesis 12, you see the connections there so clearly. He's going back to the Abrahamic covenant, just tying this up. He's saying, if you bless Israel, if you bless Israel and their king, you will be blessed. If you curse Israel and if you curse Israel's king, you will be cursed. Okay, that is what is going on. So God says through Balaam, uh, that first oracle, this is guaranteed. God is going to do this. God is going to bless them. Number two, it's guaranteed because God cannot lie. And number three, tells us that this glorious future for Israel comes to us through a what? A, a king. The king is going to be the one who does this. Verse 10. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Ding, 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 alarm bells. That goes back to his donkey. Therefore, now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. Basically, he's saying honor there is like payment. I was going to pay you because you're going to do this. Because you've done this, you don't get any money. Okay, that's what he's saying. Verse 12, and Balaam said to Balak, did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And come now, behold, I'm going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. Here's what Balaam is saying. All right, I'm done. But guess what? I got, I got one more bonus oracle for you, okay? I've got one last message for you right? The three and the three, the parallels, guess what? 
You got one more coming for you, buddy. Verse 14, for those of you who were in Joel this last summer or uh, the prophets, Isaiah, I mean, well, Genesis, talk, Genesis 49 talks about this, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 30 talks about this. The phrase, in the latter days, sometimes your Bible will translate it, in the last days, a little bit differently. That's a very significant uh, forward phrase in the Bible, okay? It's talking about not the immediate future, but actually the far future, okay? Actually, it's anticipating, as the prophets clearly reveal, um, the future for Israel on the other side of exile, okay? Which in this context, you know, Israel hasn't even, you know, begun the first, like, conquest. I mean, they kind of did, but they kind of failed. Like, they're not even in the land possessing it. And this has anticipated something that comes after they've been exiled from that. This is something that's going to come in the latter days. Uh, verse 15, oracle, <clears throat> excuse me, oracle number four. What does the end look like? Main point of this one, the Messiah is revealed. You could just say, verse 15, he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down with his eyes uncovered. Very significant verse here, verse 17. I see him but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. I'm going to pause here. Balaam sees this king figure. He sees this king, but what does he say? Not near, but, but far. This is a long ways off. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. You guys remember where on your notes? What was the last place? Where, did we see somewhere a scepter and Israel being linked together? Genesis 49. You see the link going on here. Nothing has changed in God's prophetic plan. A ruler is still to come from the line of Judah. This is where the king will come from. And just if you're not seeing the connections here clearly, Matthew 1, where it talks about you know, the genealogy of Jesus, who does he go back through? He goes to Abraham, then he goes to Isaac, then he goes to Jacob, then he goes through what? Judah, right? Matthew is trying to get us to see, okay, remember, you're tracking along with Genesis, the seed, he's coming through, boom, 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 all these peoples. He's here. He has arrived. Jesus is from this line. You'll also notice, what do you say? And this is where it's like, where's the Christmas part? A star will come out of Jacob. You ever wonder, I mean, this is just me, like, where did the Magi who came to see Jesus, where did they textually get from, like, where do we see this mention of a star? Numbers 24, 17. This is not the, uh, excuse me, this is not, this is the only text in the Old Testament where we clearly see the coming of the Messiah being linked with the appearance of a star. So clearly, God is trying to get us to see something significant here. What exactly that star looked like, I do not know. Uh, some guess that it was actually the star was when the angel, remember when the angels appeared to the shepherds? And it's just like this glorious sight. Maybe that was what the Magi saw, was this glorious bright light, because angels are very bright and shiny, okay? So, and there's a bunch of them. So maybe that is what they saw, but, saw, but something like that. And that is what calls them to go to Bethlehem. Second part of verse 17. It, this scepter, this ruler, this king, notice what he says, shall crush the forehead of Moab. 
So we've alluded to Genesis 49. We've alluded to Genesis 12, which is the last one we haven't looked at. Genesis 3 on your notes. And remember, what, what was the note you have there? Crush head. Oh, this same king is going to crush the forehead of Moab. This king is the same one that has been promised, who's the seed of the woman from Genesis 3. You start to see how all these texts link together. They're not random. And you see also that the promise of the Messiah is not isolated to one part in the Old Testament. It's pervasive, right? It's all throughout. Now, maybe you guys are like me. It's like, well, why does God, through Balaam, single out Moab here? It shall crush the forehead of Moab. Like, why Moab? Think in context. Who is Balaam addressing? Balak, who has the, who's the king of Moab, who hired Balaam to curse Israel. God is saying through Balaam, hey, you curse God's people, you will be cursed. I would argue Moab here uh, essentially serves as a representation of all the nations and all the peoples who likewise are cursing the Messiah and his people. If you curse God, you will be cursed. That is what's going on. And you see that. It goes on, right? Verse 18, he talks about Sheth. Uh, Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir, also his enemies, uh, shall be dispossessed. <coughs> He's alluding to other nations that will curse the Messiah. Israel is doing valiantly. Maybe you see that in, the, in there. And in context, if you guys are reading, it's like, Israel's not doing valiantly. Like, they've been struggling. Like, they've been sinning. All these major issues, Israel's not doing valiantly. Well, what is Balaam seeing here? Not the present, but the, the future where there actually will come a day where Israel will be doing valiantly. And they'll be doing valiantly because they're who? Their king is doing valiantly. See, see what's going on there? That is what is going on. He's talking about the future. Verse 19, And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. <clears throat> now, we didn't talk about this, but this also goes back to Genesis. Where... In the early chapters of Genesis, do you see that word dominion? Remember that? Remember like Genesis 1 where it's like, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion over, you know, the beasts of the earth, you know, the birds of the air, all this stuff. Mankind, that's what Adam was created to have, was dominion. Dominion in Hebrew is actually a very rare word that's used. You see it in Genesis 1, 26, and Genesis 1, 28. And you see it again here in Numbers 24. This king who comes from the line of Judah is a, what we would say, especially when we come to the New Testament, is a second Adam. That he is the one who actually succeeds and has dominion over all of creation because he did not fail. He did not fall into sin. So, I mean, you start to, does anyone else like read this? You're like, whoa, this is really cool. Is that just me? Like, the Bible is awesome, how it fits all these things together. And now you see how the New Testament authors are not pulling things out of thin air. They're pulling things that are in the text. This is why Paul in Romans 5 in 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ is the what? The second Adam. Because this text also reveals that he is the second Adam. You see why Revelation 5, what does it say? Christ is the lion from the tribe of Judah. Okay, Cool title, that sounds great, right? It's like, well, that's awesome. But it's also from the text. That is where they're getting this title from. You also see why, right? What is Jesus saying in the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes, how do they start? Blessed, right? 
He's pronouncing blessing. By implication, he's also pronouncing curse. If you do not come to the Son and bless him, you will be cursed. You start to see all these connections. You see why. Galatians 3.16, Christ is uh, called the seed of Abraham. You see all these, and there's so many more. Put it simply like this. This is why we can say Christ came to fulfill the law and prophets. All throughout. He is pervasive throughout the Old Testament. I need to end because I'm already five minutes over. That's essentially how Balaam's oracles end, okay? He finishes. He moves on. We don't see Balaam again until Numbers 31. Just so you know, don't take my word for it. You read Numbers 31. It's very clear that Balaam is a bad dude, okay? He convinces, um, pretty much here's what, he, here's what he does, Balak and Balaam. They're like, if I can't get God to curse Israel, what I can do is get Israel to curse God. See the difference there? I can get Israel, I can lead them astray through immorality, idolatry. I can get them to reject Yahweh, and if they curse him, then God will curse them. Does that make sense? That's essentially what happens in uh, Numbers. You see it, I mean, even Numbers 25 is when it happens. Baal worship at Peor. Um, That is what happens. But that's essentially... Numbers is kind of this very sad book, this very bad book about the first generation, but you get this glimmer of hope. You see here in Numbers 22 through 24 that God's plan, his agenda, his redemptive uh, program, if you want to call it, has it been thwarted in any way? No. Everything is proceeding exactly the way God planned it. This is exactly the way it's supposed to be. So, you see, based on the Old Testament, the birth of Christ, Christmas, it's a lot more than just his birth. Yes, his coming, that is what we are anticipating. We want the Messiah to come. He has come, and he's the king. And you also see in here this tension between, yes, some of these things have been fulfilled, but we're still waiting aspects of it to be fulfilled in fullness. Does that make sense? You also see that very clearly in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, I need to wrap up because I'm done. I've got maybe just another page or two that I'm just going to skip over. But I would just say this. If anyone here, you know, this morning, you know, you have not come to him, come to him, okay? If you kiss the son, as Psalm 2 says, lest he be angry, you know, you actually can find blessing in him. But if you reject him, he will crush you. He will curse you, okay? So maybe, you know, you've got someone, a neighbor, a family member, you know, like, I don't care about this whole, you know, like, meek and mild, Jesus born in a manger, so cute, whatever. Uh, It's nothing of significance. Maybe you bring them to Numbers 24, and you're like, "Uh, yeah, that meek and mild baby is actually a roaring lion who is going to curse you and crush you if you do not come to him. That brings a new light on Christmas, okay? And that's from the text. Maybe you don't do that to everyone, okay? But I'm just saying... We don't have to always go to, you know, the, I think sometimes we can minimize the glorious kingship of Christ if we just talk about how he is meek and mild and gentle and lowly of heart. We should talk about those things. But sometimes we need to talk about Christ in his glory and his fullness, who is like a roaring lion, okay? So that is the first messianic text we're going to look at next week. We're going to look at Isaiah 7 and 9. Okay, Isaiah 7 and 9, which clearly talks about uh, the virgin birth, and I am excited to go through that. If you have any questions, we are very much out of time, but you can come talk to me afterwards. Very happy to do that. You are dismissed. Hope to see you next week.